0: G'day, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your word, uh, even when it has difficult things to say to us, as it often does in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So we pray now that you'll help us to really concentrate on understanding your word correctly. Uh, But more than that, we pray that you'll help us to respond to it, uh, change where we have to change, change our thinking, change our lives but in all things we pray that it will encourage us to keep trusting Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen. For those with uh, eagle eyes who uh, read the back of their weekly snack and all that sort of thing you'll see that Troy has put on a bit of weight this week and got a bit more handsome than he normally is. Now, uh, was actually have is Troy uh, has a throat issue and is uh, not able to speak tonight so you get me in replacement. Uh, I've had to step in, but that's okay, because it's an easy topic we're dealing with. Uh, That was a joke. Uh, Is there a harder issue than divorce? I I don't know that there is. Uh, We preached on some pretty tough things last week, but uh, divorce, I think, is one of the most emotional and uh, hard-hitting and personal issues that you can possibly cover. There are people here, who are divorced, there are people across our church who are divorced, uh, there are people here who are in the midst of difficult marriages uh, and every one of us here has been impacted by divorce in some way. So I don't think it's possible to live in the modern world and not have someone in your family or close circle of friends who is not impacted by divorce. Uh, so whenever we think about it, we always have to remember that this is not a theoretical discussion. Uh, talking about the Bible should never be a theoretical discussion. Uh, But in particular here, this is not a theoretical discussion. We're talking about real people and real relationships. And so what we learn from God's Word uh, has to impact on real people and real relationships. And we always have to realise that and treat it uh, with the seriousness it deserves. With that in mind, sermons on this topic tend to be really, really thorough. Uh, And what tends to happen is that preachers... Uh, have a verse that touches on divorce. And so they then go to every possible passage in the Bible that talks about divorce to give everyone there the most thorough understanding of divorce. And that's because, I'll give you a little hint, it's because the preachers are scared. And I've preached like that as well. Uh, and, and what it is, is we want to make sure we dot every I and cross every T so that we don't offend anyone. You know, And we can say, We've, we have taught you the full counsel of God on this topic. Uh, so sermons on these two verses and that's all it is here two verses that jesus refers to divorce uh, will often jump over to 1 corinthians 7 another passage on the topic to matthew 19 and other passages that deal with the issue more fully and what that means is that wherever in the bible the topic comes up the sermon is usually exactly the same Uh, it's a sermon on 1 corinthians 7 and matthew 19 now this may sound terrible but i'm not going to do that tonight one because i'm a last minute preacher and i haven't had time to do all that work uh that's actually the silly reason uh my real reason is i think that that actually means we don't deal with the point jesus is making here in these verses you see jesusly jesus purposely at this point chose to just say this these two little verses on divorce jesus is the Son of God, he had Matthew 19 in his mind already. If he'd wanted at this point to give you the fuller treatment of Matthew 19, he would have preached that now, instead of waiting to do that. Jesus inspired Paul to write 1 Corinthians 7. If he wanted to give that sermon now, he would have given it now in the Sermon on the Mount. But instead, he chose not to, and I think it was intentional. Instead, he chose us to give us this very short, very stark comment on divorce, And so we need to look at it on its own terms. And as we do, I hope you'll see why Jesus did that. So now come with me to verse 31. And as you get to verse 31, just remember what we looked at last week. You remember that hard hitting stuff about adultery and the seriousness of sexual sin in the verses just before. And remember that when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't do 10 verses and then say, wait a week and come back for the next verses. It was all one talk And so they had these words about the seriousness of adultery and sexual sin ringing in their minds as he now turns and talks about divorce. They haven't got the week's gap like we've got. And actually that's because it's logical that you would go from talking about adultery to talking about divorce. This is not a new, unconnected thought. It's his logical next step. Because for a married person who's married to someone here, who wants to sleep with that person over there, but not get called an adulterer, the obvious thing you have to do is divorce this person in order to go and marry that person and sleep with them. You see, and for the Jews by the time of Jesus, at least for men, all the rules were more for men than women, uh, that was actually easy to do. Because what they had done, the Pharisees, is they had found a law in the Old Testament that they could use to justify divorcing a wife basically for anything. It was sort of like no-fault divorce, like came in Australia in the 1970s, back in the early church, well back before the time of the church. So let's look at verse 31, look at it with me. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now, they hadn't made that up, sometimes the Pharisees made stuff up, they, they hadn't made that up, that is quoting Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, which I think Jane read for us a minute ago. But what it was, was selectively quoting and applying it, which you should realise having just read all of the first five verses of Deuteronomy 24. You see, in the Old Testament. There is actually nowhere that really teaches about divorce. There wasn't like a law, thou shalt not divorce, in in, in that sense, in the Old Testament, because the whole teaching of the Old Testament was about the importance of marriage. And so right through the Old Testament, the teaching is that God's plan is for one man and one woman to be bound together to the exclusion of all others for life. And so in the Old Testament... Divorce is just unthinkable because marriage is for life. There is no get out clause, so to speak. But in Deuteronomy 24, God had given a concession where a man discovered that his wife had been sexually unclean. Now, it's unclear exactly what that meant, and our translation sort of made it sound much tamer than it actually is. Uh, But it probably meant that he married her and discovered that she had had sexual relations with someone else prior to the marriage. That's what it probably was referring to. Because given that adultery was punishable by death, under the Old Testament law, if you'll excuse me, treating something with seriousness, with a bit of humour, you didn't need divorce, if you understand the point. If adultery is stoning, then you don't need to get a divorce. So, it couldn't just be for adultery that they had this divorce law. It seems it was for sexual immorality before marriage. And God put this law in place requiring a written notice not to encourage people to divorce. The point of Deuteronomy 24 isn't if you find something wrong with your wife, then as long as you write her a written notice, divorce is okay. That wasn't the point of it, it was to protect the woman from being abused by the man who had divorced her. See, when you read Deuteronomy 24, what it's about is, it's so that a man can't divorce a woman and then say, now I want you back. And as horrible as this sounds, what it was to stop was him saying, I want to sleep with her, I'll divorce you, I'll go marry her, but now I'll come back and claim you're still my wife because you cook better meals than her. That's, that's actually what it was about. It was about patriarchal sexism at its worst. It, it was to, to curb men abusing the ease of divorce to say, I've divorced you but now I'm going to take you back. And so he couldn't come back under this law and claim rights over her. She could say, no, you divorced me. I'm free to remarry someone else and you can't come back and, and claim me again. So what this was, was a concession And a protection, not a demand. But now the Pharisees had taken this and they had basically put in the ancient equivalent of no fault divorce. If she displeases me in any way, I'm free to divorce her. That's how they'd sort of taken it, as long as I give her a written notice. But then if I remarry, I'm not guilty of adultery because I've given her the written notice and I'm not married to her anymore. But Jesus says, No. What what a horrible abuse of God's law. But then what he says next is so stark that it shakes us a bit. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You have to look carefully at what Jesus is saying here. Uh, He's saying, no, 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 this divorce by giving a certificate, that's not God's plan, because in God's eyes, marriage is for life. And so if you divorce your wife for whatever reason, and even if you've got a nice shiny certificate to say we're divorced, you are actually causing her to commit adultery, because in the ancient world a woman had to remarry, it was just the way it was, you are causing her to commit adultery because in God's eyes you're still married. And then the person who marries your divorced wife is committing adultery because in God's eyes you are still married. And it's like Jesus is saying, I don't care if you've got a nice certificate, marriage is for life. And then in the same way, you know, if you marry someone in the same case, you are committing adultery. And the point is, a lovely certificate or a written notice doesn't change the reality of how God views us and how God views our marriage vows. They are binding for life. But, people say, there's that exception there for sexual immorality. Jesus is saying, obviously, you can get a divorce if the person has committed adultery or sexual immorality. But actually look closely at the verse. And you'll actually see he's not saying that. And if you look closely, we read into it what he's saying. We say, oh, you can get a divorce when they've committed adultery. But he doesn't say that. He's actually saying, in that case, where your spouse has already committed adultery, if you divorce them, you're not causing them to commit sexual immorality or to commit adultery. Because how can you cause them to do a sin that they've already done? That's the point Jesus is making here. Jesus is not saying, oh, if they've committed adultery, you can get a divorce. He's just saying, if you do, you are not the one who has made them an adulterer. And this is very, very important. And I think this is Jesus' point here, and this is why he doesn't go on to talk about other things like he does in Matthew 19 or 1 Corinthians 7 or places like that. He doesn't want to get into a discussion of exceptions at this point and when is it okay to divorce because here in the Sermon on the Mount what is the issue he's dealing with who who are the people he's speaking against from all the previous weeks we've looked at he's speaking against Pharisees and if you say the Pharisees here's a law what do they do with it They then say oh okay there's the exceptions that's how I get out of it that's how Pharisees work They say, Jesus, what's the law? Give me the exceptions and then I'll get out of it. You see, the Pharisees love to limit righteousness by their rules. And so Jesus' point here is very, very simple. He's saying, you say, just give your wife a certificate and you can divorce her. I say, marriage is for life. Simple as that. Righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, means being true to our wedding vows. As he's about to say in a broader context, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The Christian married person does not go into marriage thinking there are exceptions. That's what Pharisees do. The Christian married person does not go into marriage saying this is for life unless you commit adultery. This is for life unless you whatever other exception we want to come up with. That would make the wedding vows very unromantic in the wedding service, wouldn't it? But of course, the question then is, well, what about those other passages where Jesus and Paul seem to give exceptions? The two most commonly raised ones are abandonment by a non-believing spouse in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, and adultery in Matthew 19. I'm not going to go through those today. You can come and Speak to me about them if you want to ask questions, or you can look up old sermons of mine. I've preached on them both more than once before. But I think the key is to see, and this is really important, that even in those passages, they are best not thought of as exceptions. So often you'll hear Christians say, "Marriage is uh, sorry, divorce is forbidden." If you hear Christians say marriage is forbidden, that's anyway, divorce is forbidden except in these circumstances where it's allowed. I think that is an unhelpful way of talking about the Bible's teaching. What they are uh, is concessions to the reality of sin and the brokenness of our fallen world. See, if we say divorce is forbidden, except in these circumstances, too often the Pharisee in us grabs the exceptions and says, how can I fit into one? That's what Pharisees do and we're all Pharisees at times. We become obsessed with defining the exception. Oh they've committed adultery. I wanted a divorce so now I can do it and no one can judge me. But the scriptures would say no, the greater righteousness would be to seek to reconcile and forgive and that should always be the aim, forgiveness and reconciliation Otherwise, it makes no sense of the way God talks about his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. Do you know the, the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament? And that incredibly graphic story where God says to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. And when Gomer, his prostitute wife, goes off and sleeps with another man, what does God say? He doesn't say, go and get a divorce because she's committed adultery and she's made, had one of the exceptions. He says, go and take her to be your wife again. Hosea had the worst job of all the Israelite prophets but it was making a point about God and his people. God was saying, you my adulterous people, you turn your back on me and I take you back and I forgive you and then you turn your back on me and worship idols again and I take you back and forgive you. That is God's picture of faithfulness, that is the greater righteousness and it's not unattainable, I've seen people who've done it. I've seen people who have forgiven adultery and gone on to recommit and re-establish a marriage. But the scriptures recognise the reality that sometimes despite all our efforts, that is not possible. In which case, sometimes divorce is reluctantly and finally necessary. So I think we should avoid saying divorce is forbidden except in these circumstances and instead say marriage is for life. But then reluctantly, after every effort, we can see that sometimes divorce might be a painful and unavoidable outcome. I hope you can see the difference in those two ways of talking about it. Now, a couple of things to think about. First of all, to those who are married. Uh, But everyone, please listen, because you may be married in the future, and you know people who are married who need your encouragement. Jesus' primary point here is actually more about marriage than divorce. I think that's really important to see. His point is be committed to your marriage. Or, more importantly, be totally committed to the person you have promised to love and serve in sickness and in health till death do us part. I'm going to be very blunt here and sound quite unromantic, probably because I am. Uh, except towards my wife. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes see Christians who read a passage like this and then actually act like a Pharisee in the other direction. See, they say, well, marriage is for life. And then they just sort of sit back, cross their arms and do nothing to love the other person. They do nothing to work on the healthiness of their relationship. They do nothing to serve the other. They do nothing to deal with the issues in their marriage. In the worst cases, they act negatively towards the other person. And so they then, effectively what they do is they presume on the godliness of the other person. It's like they're saying, well, there's no divorce, so you're stuck with me. I want to say in that situation, that is abuse of God's good gift of marriage. In exactly the same way that divorce is. And so I would argue that that person is just as guilty of sin, it's a different sin, but they're just as guilty of sin before God as the person who seeks a divorce that God does not sanction. See, the key application here is work at truly honouring your marriage vows. That's the key application. Not just the part about them being for life. Husbands, love your wives and serve them like Christ loves the church. Husbands, lay down your lives in service of your wives like Christ did for us. And wives, love and honour your husbands as you promised to do in your wedding vows. If you are married and your marriage is stunted or dysfunctional in any way, I want to say to you, get help. I'm always amazed at the stupidity of most men in marriages. Most men are too proud to go and see a counsellor when their marriage is on the rocks. It is very rarely the woman who won't do it. It's most men. Go and get help if you are married and your marriage is struggling, come and talk to me and I can recommend someone who you can go and see. If you wait until people are talking about divorce, it is too late. Now at this point, I want to talk briefly about separation. Sometimes it is a good and right thing for married couples to separate. And in the modern sense of that word, separation is different to divorce. See, where there is abuse in a relationship or where it has deteriorated, to the point that it is actually damaging for the people in the marriage and especially for the children it is sometimes necessary to separate for a time even for an extended time that is not divorce but the key is what is your intention is your intention to honor the marriage vows is your intention to work towards reconciliation and forgiveness that must be the intention Second type of people I want to talk to is to those who are divorced. There are very many people in our church, across all our parish, who are divorced. And I say, praise God for that. That is wonderful. Not that they're divorced, but it's wonderful that they are welcome into our church. Because divorce is not some unforgivable sin. For some people who are divorced, they, have worked, they at the time worked through the issue biblically, with godly counsel at the time... And in the end, their divorce was one of those concession situations in the Scriptures. In which case, I want to say to that person, you should not feel guilty for things that God does not condemn. Sometimes people who are divorced feel great guilt, as if they have sinned against God, and they actually feel greater guilt than the reality of their situation. But for other people who are divorced, you might have come to realise that perhaps your divorce was not in line with what God's Word desires. You mightn't have been a Christian at the time, you might not have understood God's word at the time and at that point I want to say remember that Jesus died for you, to take your guilt away. Now what repentance looks like in the case of divorce is really, really difficult. If if you are a thief and you become a Christian, repentance is quite easy. Go and pay back what you stole and a bit more. There you go, that's how you repent and don't don't steal anymore it's sort of simple might be that easy to do but but it's simple in terms of the theory but here that it's just not possible often to go back and restore what has been lost see where a person is remarried or, or the other person is remarried or or whatever has happened so repentance might just be recognizing that we did not honor marriage as we should have that might be all that is possible and committing to live God's way now in our new circumstance that might be all that is possible for repentance for a person in that circumstance and I'm not going to go through it all today but if that's you you want to work through the scriptures to work out how you should now live but the big point I want to make now is to say divorce is not some unforgivable sin Jesus died for all of our sin public private and everything else thirdly And probably the most relevant for this congregation, to those who are not married. I want to say to you, understand how serious marriage is. God does not offer get out clauses. No one listens to the words I say at the start of the wedding service. Have you ever noticed that? I'm up here, people are coming together, but everyone's looking at the bride. Everyone's going, oh, isn't she lovely? And it's like there's this haze of romantic beautifulness. In the church. So, no one listens to the words that the minister says at the start of the wedding service as they stand here, which is really sad because what those words are meant to do is to jolt you out of staring at the bride and say, Hang on, what's that about? They're meant to be sobering, they're meant to make you think. So, what I'm going to do is read them out now while you're listening. (laughs) This is what it says in the prayer book it says, Marriage should not be entered into lightly or carelessly, but seriously and thoughtfully considering those purposes for which it was instituted by God. See, the purpose of reading out those words is to say to people, this is not something minor going on here. This is the most important decision, other than to follow Jesus, that a person makes in their life. And it is irrevocable. You see, be careful who you marry. That's one of the biggest points of Jesus' teaching on divorce, is to say, be careful who you marry. You might decide not to marry. That's Paul's suggestion in 1 Corinthians 7. He, and, and Peter says, when he hears Jesus' teaching about marriage being for life, he said, who's ever get married then? You see, the initial lust and sort of puppy love dissolves. If you're lucky, after a year, usually after about six months. And then you're left with this person who like you is a sinner and who you've promised to love and to serve till death do you part make it as easy as possible for yourself choose someone who you share your faith with first of all choose someone who you respect choose someone who you believe will be easy to love and honor because their character is worth respecting that's what you should be looking for in a marriage partner. Marriage should not be entered into lightly or carelessly but seriously and thoughtfully. Well that's enough on marriage, let's move on for the last bit. Come with me, open up your Bibles again, come to verse 33. Again it's a logical connection here because the next thing Jesus deals with is keeping your word which is very connected to what he's just said about divorce and marriage. Do you remember a little while back when one of our politicians said that there were core promises and non-core promises. Do you remember that? I don't remember who the politician was. Someone can tell me afterwards. I don't want to say it from the front because I don't want to sound like I'm supporting one side or the other. But uh, a politician famously came out and said, ah, we haven't kept that because that's a non-core promise. And it just sounds wrong, doesn't it? I, I think he was trying to make a valid point. And I think sometimes we're too hard on our politicians. I think what he was saying is there are some promises that you just should keep no matter what. But there are some promises you make where circumstances change and it's no longer wise to keep that promise. So if I promise to give you, give every person in Australia a thousand dollars but then the company goes back, country goes bankrupt, well it's not very wise to keep that promise. That's the point he was trying to make. What he came out and said is I promise to keep those promises and not those promises and that just sounds wrong. Well the Pharisees had a similar system. They had levels of oaths. And so if you swore in the name of the Lord, that was serious. That meant you had to keep your word. But if you swore on the temple, that was less serious. And if you swore on Jerusalem, that was different again. If you swore on your head, that was different also. And so they made all these oaths on different things. And then they argued about which one was more or less binding than the other oaths. We do the same thing, don't we? When we go into a court of law, we swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When you think about it, that's saying, yeah, because you can't usually trust me, but this one, I I will tell the truth. It's actually a bit silly when you think about it, it's saying, we're all actually liars, but at this point, we might try and tell the truth. And you see it in game shows and things like Survivor, where they go, I swear on my mother's grave that I won't vote for you. I swear on my children's life that I won't vote for you, you know, that sort of thing. My mother's not dead, I can swear on any grave I like, you know. But but by the very act of doing it, you're saying, my word is not normally trustworthy. I need some more important oath to make me worth trusting. And so Jesus says, just don't do it. Look at what he says, firstly from verse 34. He says, for I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. And I think he's making a really, really simple point. He's saying, whatever you swear by is God's anyway. So that means every promise you make is an oath to the Lord, which leads to his key point in verse 37. He says, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. It's pretty simple really, isn't it? You should not need to make a special oath if you just tell the truth all the time. Just be faithful to your word all the time. Just be reliable all the time. Just do what you said you would do all the time. And if for some reason you can't, don't give excuses and don't say, well, I didn't swear on the Bible. Just apologise and do what you can do. You see, the devil is the master of lies. When we are economical with the truth, it's funny how we come up with all different phrases that all mean lying, isn't it? When we are economical with the truth, that is not a harmless white lie, that is from the devil. Now, I don't think Jesus... Is forbidding Christians from swearing on a Bible in you know, a court of law or somewhere like that. I think that would be to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. We actually do that for the benefit of the system. We're saying this is a solemn occasion where truthfulness is important, even if in some other circles it's not. It's not. I remember someone when we had a game in our gospel team where it was you have to tell three things about yourself and one of them's a lie. And someone came up to me and said, oh, I'm not willing to play that game because I don't. Tell lies. I said, but we're going to know it's a lie within twelve seconds of you saying. <laughs> but they were committed to not playing the game. and That's okay; it's their conscience. But I, Jesus is not trying to make you know rules about that sort of thing. He's saying, in your life, be known for your truthfulness. Be known for your faithfulness. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And it's worth asking: Are you known as someone who speaks the truth? or someone who dissembles? It's another one of those words for lying. It's worth asking, are you known as someone who can be relied upon, or are you the person who people say, I'll take a book, because they often stand me up? When you say you'll do something, do you do it? I remember when I was about 16, I was invited to a party uh, of a kid who wasn't that popular, but I had nothing else on on that Saturday night, so I RSVP'd yes. But then on the Friday, I got invited to a much cooler kids' party. So I thought, oh, I'll go to that instead. But I made the mistake of telling my mother. I said, I'm not going to Shane's party, I'm going to Corey's party instead. That's not actually their names. But I thought I'd give them cool ladies' names, because that's what it was. <laughs> but, um, but when I said that to my mum, my mother is a very self-controlled woman. Uh, but I still remember how angry she was at me. Uh, and she said, how dare you not go to the party you have RSVP'd to? You will let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I, I didn't know it at the time. I just thought my mum was angry at me, but she was quoting the Bible. I did not even know if she knew she was quoting the Bible at me, but it has stuck with me ever since. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I was still wavering and I remember she said if you are not going to Shane's party you will ring his mother and tell her the truth and I will listen as to why you are not going I went to Shane's party (laughs) and I am incredibly thankful for that let your yes be yes you guys know I'm not that big a fan of Facebook and all that sort of thing but one of the reasons I hate Facebook is the maybe button it says do not let your yes be yes see if you get a better offer man up <laughs> say yes or say no but really we should not need our mothers to force us to be truthful and faithful should we if we are followers of Jesus we believe in a God who is 100% faithful don't we people including us let each other down people including us have sometimes said yes and meant no and said yes and done no you know what i mean we all have but we will believe in a god who is faithful and he has promised your sins are forgiven by the death of jesus if you will just trust in him and that is a certain promise guaranteed and he has promised you'll be raised with jesus to live with him forever if you will just trust in jesus and that is certain and guaranteed and we know that our god is faithful Because the Bible is the story of his faithfulness to his promises. You see, we are faithful because the one we follow is faithful. Do you want to be different to our world? Do you want to be salt, like we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you want to be a light in our world? Then be a person whose yes is yes. Be a person who people can count on. Be faithful. Be truthful. Let's be people who let our yes be yes and our no be no let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for the gift of marriage in light of tonight's service and sermon and we pray for all those who are married in our church and we pray that you will help us to be faithful in our marriage vows help us to love and serve those we have promised to love and serve and father we pray for those who have gone through the horrible difficult time of divorce and we pray for those people that they might know your wonderful forgiveness where that is necessary and they might know the comfort of your truth in other circumstances and we pray for all people whether married or divorced or never married that we will be people of faithfulness now that we will be people who are true to our word and who people know are reliable in everything And we know that we can do this because we follow you, the God who is truly faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.